This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. In the approaching spring of 1992, along the vast stretches of interstate snaking through the Wyoming wilderness, the melting snow revealed the body of an unidentified murdered woman near Bitter Creek. Over a month later, the body of another woman appeared. Investigators eventually made a chilling connection between the cold cases, and both women, along with their killer, have remained nameless for 26 years. Paul Violis is a CBS News security consultant, an accomplished author, and a renowned global security and law enforcement expert. With over 35 years of experience, he's dedicated his life to finding solutions for the problems that keep you up at night. This is Security Matters with Paul Violis. Welcome to Security Matters, where your security matters most. I'm Paul Violas, and this is a CBS News Radio production. Big thank you to everybody that's been hitting us up quite a bit on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn now. Uh, also, a big thanks to so many people that have taken the time to go to cbsaudio.com and leave us a review. Believe it or not, this is so important for us, you guys. It is so important because... Security Matters was created to address the things that you, that keep you up at night. And with you writing us in and letting us know your thoughts, the show becomes that much better. So a big thank you for that. Today, ladies and gentlemen, is truly an honor for me to bring to you an unprecedented alliance between, between the world's most iconic media network, that being CBS News Radio, and our country's largest police organization, the FOP. The Fraternal Order of Police, for those of you that don't know, is the oldest and largest police organization in the country, representing well over 350,000 police officers. The National Executive Board of the FOP, led by someone I respect greatly, President Pat Yose, embraces this opportunity to bridge the community divide between police and citizens by joining with CBS News Radio and highlighting cold cases around the country that need national exposure to bring justice for these innocent victims and those families seeking closure. Beginning today, and God willing for a long time to come, we, CBS News Radio, Security Matters, will bring to you a monthly cold case show in conjunction with the FOP. FOP leadership will be accepting cold cases from agencies all over the United States. Believe it that, all over the United States. They will send them to the FOP leadership, and then from them, they will send them to us. And each month, you will be hearing a new show. You will be hearing updates throughout the month, both on our segments in radio and on our podcast so that we can make sure that we keep this at the forefront every day. Folks, 
we have about 314 million Americans and approximately 1.3 million cops and are looking at an average of 200,000 cold cases. For far too long, we've had a blatant divide between many of our communities and their police. So starting right now, and I mean right now, we are going to bridge that. And we're going to do that through good old-fashioned communication and the power of CBS media distribution. To clarify, when I mean cold case, a cold case, ladies and gentlemen, is in layman's terms, it's an unsolved criminal investigation where all probative investigative means have been exhausted. doesn't mean it's dead. It means it's just cold. I'm going to ask you, you, I'm going to ask you to listen to the elements of each case and use your own communication channels to assist police and us here at Security Matters in locating suspects, identifying victims, bringing closure to loved ones, and working with police in solving these crimes. So, consider yourself deputized. Now, our first case, which involves three victims, which you may hear during the course of these cases referred to as VICs. One unidentified subject, which you may hear the term unsub used quite a bit, over two different states, that being Wyoming and Tennessee. And that's what we know of so far. So let's start with our first case. On March 1st, 1992, Barbara Leverton, a female over-the-road truck driver, stopped her rig at the Bitter Creek Truck Turnout, located near mile marker 142 on the westbound travel lanes of Interstate 80 in order to transfer fuel from one tank to the other. The Bitter Creek truck turnout is in Sweetwater County, Wyoming, approximately 40 miles east of Rock Springs, Wyoming. While the fuel transfer was taking place, Miss Leverton looked around and discovered the nude body of an unknown Hispanic Latina female lying face down, partially covered with snow. Ms. Leverton attempted to notify police with her CB radio, but was unsuccessful. However, another truck driver, Jeffrey Stronach, heard her transmissions and utilized a mobile telephone to call 911. The 911 call was received by Rock Springs Police Department's communication center, and they in turn notified the Sweetwater County Sheriff's Office. With us today from the Wyoming Division of Criminal Investigations is Special Agent Lloyd Young. Special Agent Young's 28-year career brings him in to us as an expert in cold case investigations, homicide investigations, violent crimes, and crime scene processing. First and foremost, Special Agent Young, thank you for taking the time to join us, for presenting this information, and take us from here. What happened from here? Well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate you having me. Uh, So once the dispatch center was notified of the body being found. Uh, Members of the Sweetwater County Sheriff's Office responded to the area and secured the scene. Uh, Subsequently, the coroner's office arrived and the victim was recovered. Uh, During the recovery, the detectives on scene noted that the body was completely frozen when it was removed from the location where it was lying and that there was approximately nine inches of snow underneath the body. 
which is an indication that it had been dumped there after the snow had fallen. Uh, they noticed that the victim was wearing a gold uh, wedding band, not like a female version of a wedding ring, but uh, what a male would normally wear on her left ring finger. Interesting. Also a gold, uh, solid gold necklace. Um, she also had a rose tattoo on her right breast with a stem and leaves, and there was some uh, Chinese characters uh, tattooed in the vicinity of the rose. So basically, Lloyd, that tattoo was, was not your generic rose. There was something more specific to it. Correct. It was okay. like, uh, you know, some Chinese characters uh, alongside the tattoo of the rose. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, um, obviously, they um, secured the, the, the remains of the victim and transported the body to the morgue. <clears throat> because it was frozen, they had to wait to uh, conduct an uh, autopsy until the following day. And in Wyoming, we have a coroner system where coroners are elected, and they don't necessarily have to have any particular training in order to be elected. And the original autopsy was performed in Sweetwater County by a, a general practitioner doctor in the coroner's office, and they were unable to determine uh, cause of death. So the investigators at the time determined that they would transport the body to Colorado where a forensic pathologist could uh, conduct a second autopsy. And <clears throat> that was done, and the forensic pathologist, Dr. Allen, uh, conducted an autopsy uh, uh, the following day and determined that the victim was between the ages of 24 and 32 years old. She was 5 feet 8 inches tall with uh, and weighed approximately 125 to 130 pounds. Um, the eye color was unable to be determined due to the decomposition, but they believed that her eyes were most likely brown. Okay. Uh, they noticed they noted that the victim had a scar on her abdomen that was approximately 16 centimeters in length, and and they they thought that that was likely a, a cesarean scar. Okay. The uh, they also noted that the victim had a small one inch scar on the back of her left calf, and. Uh, Dr. Allen, during the second autopsy, found a puncture wound in her left nostril that penetrated her sphenoid bone and into the brain and determined that that was the cause of death. Now, I should note that there is some speculation as to whether that could have happened during the first autopsy leading to that, uh, just because it's such an uncommon uh, cause of death. And the investigators at the time uh, searched diligently to see if they could find any similar instances of uh, a cause of death like that in the United States, and they were unable to do so. Now, Loy, I'm going to jump in real quick. For all of our listeners to, to kind of, I want you to remember, as we told you, you're part of this case now. So what I want you to remember right now, what Special Agent Young was just saying, is we have not identified the identity of this woman. She is somebody's mom or daughter, sister, friend, so if you know somebody that disappeared, and I want, this is what I want you to line of thinking to go with, if you know somebody that disappeared on or about March 1st, 1992, that was known to frequent truck stops and had a scar like that from her, on her abdomen that may have been from a C-section and had a scar uh, on her uh, left calf and had a tattoo like that, 
if you know somebody like that, all right, I want your wheels to start turning because a special, a special agent is, Young is going to conclude here at the end of, the, of, of our case today. These are the things we need you to spread around because if, if anything, if we can bring some closure to somebody and identify who this woman is, we want to do that. So uh, Special Agent Young, I'm sorry. If, go ahead. Take, take us now uh, into what happens next. Yeah, um, one thing, one other thing at autopsy is that they estimated that the body had been lying there since um, October or November of uh, 1991. <clears throat> and uh, I have been unable, unable to determine why exactly they made that, but um, in, I went back and looked at the weather patterns for that time period in October and November of 91, and it was just uh, too warm for that snow to have been accumulated uh, the nine inches that was underneath the body for that period of time. And the, uh, even the, the original detective made a note that although they said it, the, it was deposited since October, it was more probably within several weeks prior to her discovery. Okay. And, and th that becomes important when we talk later on about the second victim that was located in Wyoming. Okay, so let's go on to the fingerprinting process and how we, we, we move on to July 22nd, 1992. So once the, once the uh, victim, the autopsy was completed, the victim was taken to, to the Wyoming State Crime Laboratory and uh, post-mortem fingerprints were taken. Those fingerprints were, uh, she had been relatively well-preserved in the snow, so they were able to do post-mortem fingerprints. And those fingerprints were sent out nationwide, all 50 states, and, and no identity was um, affected based on the fingerprints. Okay. And a, a, as you said a moment ago, she still remains unknown to us today. Although over time, because we have two unidentified victims here in Wyoming, we've um, enduringly referred to her as Bitter Creek Betty since she was found near the Bitter Creek exit okay. on I-80. So again, to reiterate to all of our great listeners, we still need an identity for Betty. We still need an identity for Betty. Now, Lloyd, take us now. July 22nd, 1992, something profound happened. What was that? Yeah, a truck driver had seen the uh, flyer that the sheriff's office had put out with a photograph of the victim and a photograph, of, uh, detailed photograph of the tattoo and those Chinese characters. And the truck driver recognized those Chinese characters as the signature of a tattoo artist in the Tucson, Arizona area who called himself Tattoo Ralph. And uh, he called into the sheriff's office and, and provided that information. Uh, Detective Dick Bluss at the time did some research, tried to locate a Ralph's tattoo parlor in Tucson, was unable to do so, but then spoke with other tattoo artists in the Tucson area and found that there was actually a guy named Ralph who called himself Tattoo Ralph and had like a little tattoo business set up near a truck stop in Tucson, Arizona. And so uh, Detective Bluss then contacted the truck stop manager and he confirmed that there was a, a guy named Tattoo Ralph that had a tattoo shop. Therefore, uh, Detective Bluss got in touch with the Tucson Police Department and talked with their detectives and asked them if they would track down Tattoo Ralph and conduct an interview with him and see if he recognized that tattoo of the rose that was on our victim. Right. And 
so they did so. They found uh, a guy by the name of Ralph Hawley who called himself Tattoo Ralph and owned a, a tattoo shop called Kick-Ass Tattooing. And <clears throat> they went and visited with him. And he identified that tattoo as being one that he did. And he was sure about it because of the design of the tattoo, the colors, and more specifically because of those Chinese characters. That was like his signature after uh, an artist completes a painting, they sign it. That was his signature on his tattoo work. And it was uh, Chinese characters that he interpreted as Kung Fu. And he would put that on, on everyone near the tattoo after he completed the tattoo. And so he was sure he did it. And based on the, the colors that were used in the tattoo and the design of the tattoo, he narrowed it down to like uh, within being the tattoo being inked within the last two years. And why and is so, that? Why was that? Because because he had never used that color scheme and that design prior to a couple of years before the interview that he gave to the Got Tucson it. detectives. And so, um, there. Uh, that was pretty much all the information he could uh, remember at the time. And so uh, we, that was positive. You know, they, they had a, a good lead with the, the tattoo, but um, he couldn't really remember anymore. But so they visited with him and he agreed to do an interview under hypnosis. Uh, now, oftentimes. In- now, is that common, Loy? Is that common to, to, resert, to, to revert to hypnosis for witnesses like that? Yeah, I, I don't know if "common" is the right word, but if if time passes, there, you know, it, it's a way to try to get the person to get back into uh, those memories from long ago, and it, and it is used frequently in cases like this. Yes. Okay, so now what we know so far also is that um, he was certain that it had to have been sometime during Bike Week. Is that correct? Well, no, he. Uh, he also would travel from Tucson to Sturgis, South Dakota, and tattoo, do tattoos at the Sturgis Bike Week. Okay. But he distinguished. He distinguished and said, "I know for a fact that this tattoo was not done not during, done bike, during week. bike Week." Okay. Right, because he at Bike Week he's so busy that he can't really do color tattoos. The, adding the color takes extra time. He explained that he didn't really have time to do color if he was at Bike Week. Bike Week. So he knew that, based on that, he had done the tattoo in Tucson sometime within the last two years. So we do know, to add this in, that our victim had been in Arizona and was referred to as a leaper. Is that correct? Correct. And, and a lot of that came out uh, more clearly after, when, when they conduct it, that October. Uh, that interview was done, obviously, in July. That following October is when they conducted the interview under hypnosis. Tell us about that. And, yeah, the, uh, the, the gentleman who did it was a counselor at a, at a counseling and consulting agency, and he noted that his recall under hypnosis was good, and he remembered meeting the victim in June or July of 1991 when that, she entered his tattoo shop. Okay, and that fit? Which was, yeah, which was across the street from a truck stop uh, outside of Tucson. And she selected the tattoo, the rose, and then she had to leave to go get money to pay for the tattoo. And he watched as she left. She walked back to the truck stop towards a beige uh, semi-tractor trailer unit. He did not actually see her get in the truck, but, but he saw her walking towards it and then turned away. About five minutes later, she came back with the money. She, uh, he inked the tattoo. Uh, it took him about 30 minutes. 
as he was cleaning up, she left, and he didn't really see where she went. But he described her as being a Hispanic female, 25 or 26 years of age, and said that she was wearing a brown uh, floral print dress with yellow flowers and had what he described as a peasant-type top that has the elastic that can either be uh, up above the shoulders or down on the shoulders. And so, you know, he, he, he described, uh, gave a pretty good description during that interview. That's fascinating. So yeah. now, and now it, you, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Definitely, yeah, and it definitely put her in Tucson at that truck stop. And, and so, you know, the law enforcement, because of that for all these years, have believed that uh, a truck driver was possibly involved with the, the homicide. Okay, so let's pause for a second. What we know about Betty, Loy, is we know that she was a leaper, meaning she was the kind of woman that hung out of truck stops and, and went from truck driver to truck driver. We know that she was in Wyoming. We know that she was in Tucson. That's what we know so far, correct? We know she was a Hispanic female, approximately 26 years of age. She had had some type of C-section where that there was that type of scar across her abdomen. She had a scar on her left calf, and she had the tattoo on her right breast with the Chinese lettering. Am I accurate correct. so far? Yes. Okay. So for everybody listening, I want you to jot that down. This woman disappeared on or about March 1992. Do we know anything else that I left out about Betty? Well, with the, with the C-section scar, it's, it's very likely that she possibly has a, a child somewhere. Absolutely. Very possibly has a child somewhere. Excellent. All right. Now, as we move forward, April 13th, 1992, what happens now? Yeah, on, uh, in April, on that date in 92, the, some workers from the Wyoming Highway Department were checking the right-of-way fence in Sheridan, out, just outside of Sheridan, Wyoming, right. uh, about five miles south of the Montana-Wyoming border. And uh, as they were checking the right-of-way fence, they found a, a deceased female laying in the borrow ditch and contacted the Sheridan County Sheriff's Office. The uh, the deputies responded to the scene, and they found a, a female, white female, fully clothed except for she was missing her shoes and socks. Uh, mile marker five on the eastbound uh, travel lanes of Interstate 90. Okay. Uh, they they noted that the vehicle or that the victim was wearing. Um, size 5, KO of California brand blue jeans with a wide white belt that had a gold buckle. Uh, size large, saucy brand, blue and white checkered midriff shirt. It was one of those blouses that uh, you tie up a, at the belly. Mm -hmm. And uh, had pearl-colored ornamental buttons. And she was wearing a 38C size uh, chic brand uh, Brazier and uh, pink and blue paisley size five six uh, women's bikini style panties. Okay. Now, um, body of the victim was par partially mummified, correct? 
she was partially the decomposition had uh advanced pretty far and she was partially mummified uh because of that they weren't able to really do good postmortem fingerprints right so and the decomposition also really affected the autopsy and there there was uh no cause or manner of death determination made by the forensic pathologist. Okay, so now April 15, 1992, an autopsy is performed by forensic pathologist Dr. Patrick Allen. The victim is determined to be 5'5 and a half, weighing approximately 110 to 115. The victim had pierced ears wearing brass-style post earrings. Dr. Allen noted the post-mortem decomposition hindered determination of cause of death. So we're on the same page there, right? Correct. Okay, so while the cause of death and the manner of death remain undetermined. Um, what did Dr. Allen document then at the point at that point relative to the victim? Well, she had a, a hematoma a bruise on the right side of her head, and they, that that was actually uh, they didn't note that during the actual autopsy because the decomposition was so bad. Right. But because her face was so decomposed, they were doing a facial reconstruction in order to try to figure out what she looked like when she was alive. And so in order to do that, you have to uh, prepare the skull and mandible. And a- after cleaning it up to do the f- the facial reconstruction, they noted the hematoma on the on the head and took it back and had Dr. Allen re-examine it. And then he noted that that, that injury existed. Um, one other thing they noted during autopsy was that the victim was approximately two and a half months pregnant and had the, the fetus still uh, present. So uh, but a, an interesting thing also with her is that the, all the toxicology came back negative for all the substances that they tested for. So there was no drugs or alcohol on board that could be determined. Okay. Now take us through this as we see. We noticed that um, she's examined post-mortem x-ray shows her at about 25 to 35 years of age, right? And that she had at least given right. birth once in the past. So again, to all our yes. listeners, um, as Special Agent Young is describing this, you're looking at a second victim that uh, was found, which means if anybody knows somebody out there that disappeared on or about April 15th, 1992 in Wyoming uh, or possibly in a neighboring state uh, that's meeting this description. This is description we're going to add to, approximately 25 to 35, two and a half months pregnant, and had given birth once before. Now, as she's found, a paper towel was located in the crotch area, correct? Presumably, pre- right. presumably used as a sanitary napkin, which would, which would tell you, as a detective, what would that tell you? Well, po- possibly after uh, having some type of sexual uh, relations. She was using that to, you know, catch anything that was falling out and preserve her clothing. Um, Additionally, there was some, a a white substance noted on the, in the vaginal area, the swabs were taken of that white substance. And um, subsequently um, the white, the, the swabs from the white substance turned out to contain semen and spermatozoa or sperm, and and a partial DNA profile was later uh, developed from those swabs that were taken during the autopsy. Okay. Uh, one thing one thing I did want to mention was that that 
her age was originally predicted by a radiologist who just was examining the the postmortem x-rays and they estimated her age at 25 to 35 years and and the radiologist is the one who believed that she had previously given birth based on those x-rays okay um so uh, again uh, after all all of the efforts that were made um that the victim still remained unidentified um we re- refer to that victim as i90 jane doe to keep her um you know when we we discuss these cases uh, as, as will become clear they're obviously related and so to keep the victims uh separate in our minds that's how we refer to her but we would love to know her real name okay so to that in january 2007 vaginal swabs and swabs from an ice sample were collected at the crime scene of the victim found in Sweetwater County and were analyzed by the Wyoming State Crime Lab. And the swabs contained semen and sperm. The sperm fraction yielded a complete DNA profile for the suspected perpetrator. Is that correct? That is correct. Now, tell now us this, is the, this, this is the victim out of Sweetwater County. Right. Yes. Now tell us what happens in April of 2012. So in April of 2012, because the profile that was found on the Sheridan County victim did not meet the requirements to be entered into the state or national DNA database, but our crime lab people did what they call a keyboard search. They pulled the partial profile from the Sheridan County victim and compared the profile to the full profile that was taken from the Sweetwater County victim that was in the national database, and they found that those two profiles were a match. So in essence, the same male DNA was found on both victims. Okay, so what we know for sure, what we know for sure is that the same individual, the perpetrator, the person we are looking for, the unidentified subject, the unsub in this case, is the same for Betty and Jane, correct? Correct. Okay. Take us through briefly as you as you kind of do your summary on on Jane Doe and Betty. Take us through that briefly as far as what we're able to what we found out there. Okay. Uh, well, if I might back up just briefly, um, we did also in 2006 take photographs of the crime scene from Sher- Jane Doe in Sheridan County to the University of Wyoming and have an entomologist look at those because they depicted some insect activity. Okay. He, he looked at those photographs and at the weather patterns around prior to the time the body was discovered. And based on that, we have a pretty good scientific uh, opinion that the body was actually dumped in Sheridan County in mid-February of 1992. So that becomes important because if you recall, there was nine inches of snow under the Sweetwater County victim. Right. And, and the investigator noted she was probably dumped likely uh, weeks before she was found. And she was, the decomposition hadn't uh, affected her as much. And so we believe that both girls were probably dumped nearer to that February time frame, and therefore they probably went missing you know, prior to uh, or around February of 1992. Okay. And, and that's one thing people should be aware of. Perfect. So what we, what we know now through this excellent piece of forensic investigation is that on or about February of 1992, both of these ladies went missing. Is that our benchmark, Lloyd? Correct. Yes. 
Excellent. Okay. To give a little bit more data before we take this to the next level, uh, as far as the summary on Jane Doe and the summary on, on Betty, how would you break them down individually? Well, we, we believe for sure that uh, Betty was uh, least associated with truck drivers as being seen at the truck stop. We, we really don't know about Jane. We, don't, we have very little information about Jane. Uh, as uh, that we, we did find out later, uh, having her skull and mandible examined at the University of Wyoming, that that age estimation that was originally given of 25 to 35 years old was way too high. Based on the, the development of her third molars, uh, the head of the anthropology department at University of Wyoming estimated her age closer to 17 to 22 years of age because that's when those third molars completely develop and these were undeveloped, or not fully developed. Okay. And so we believe that she was much younger than the original uh, the original estimation. So, um, you know, people should be thinking, you know, did I know someone of that age, you know, 17 to uh, 18 years old or 22, 23 years of age when she went missing that was pregnant at the time. Got it. Okay, so now on October 11, 2017, DNA samples from both victims, from Jane Doe and, and Bitter Creek Betty, were sent to DNA Solutions uh, for snapshot testing, right? To the results of the Paragon indicated what? Indicated that uh, Jane Doe uh, had light brown or fair skin, brown or hazel eyes, brown hair, no freckles, uh, but also that looking at the ancestry, from what I understand, showed that the subject is likely the result of a mixture between Native American and European ancestry. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So Central American Indian. Okay. So basically with everybody with everybody so what you were looking for now is we add to the subjects and we're looking at Jane Doe. We're also looking at somebody now that is a mixture, very possibly a mixture between Native American and European ancestry, in addition to 17 to 23 years of age, two and a half months pregnant, had already given birth once before, went missing on or about February 1992. Am I leaving anything out? Correct. With brown hair, brown or hazel eyes, uh, no freckles, you know, five feet, five and a half inches tall and approximately 110 to 115 pounds. Okay, now give us a quick one on, on Betty. Same yeah, so thing. Betty, the, the same thing, the DNA results showed that Betty was Hispanic or Latina, uh, light brown or fair skin, brown or hazel eyes, with black or brown hair, no freckles, and her ancestry put her in that Hispanic population. And she was 5'8", 125 to 130 pounds, and uh, if you, if she got, was 24, 25, when she got the tattoo in 1991, then she would have been 26, 27 when um, her body was recovered. Okay. Now, let's take this one with step further. With the rose further. tattoos. Right, with the tattoos as well that we mentioned before. Now we have good, solid Correct. description of our victims that are still missed, that, that, that are still identified. We'll talk about that before we close. But before we take our next break, before we take a break, Lloyd, in May of 2019, tell us what happened here, briefly. Yeah, so our, our 
agency, the Wyoming Division of Criminal Investigation, was notified of a CODIS hit. That means that the National DNA Database produced a hit on our uh, unknown subject, uh, the suspected violator who's our, our, who we had put the DNA into CODIS. And it, the, the hit came out of the state of Tennessee. So we contacted the investigators in Tennessee and found that they had uh, found a victim in 1991 and had recently reopened a case and after reopening the case submitted evidence that produced DNA that matched our identified subjects DNA. Okay, so what we have right now before we take our break is we have an absolute connection between the perpetrator that we're looking for for both of those murders in Wyoming and now one in the state of Tennessee. When we come back... We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by uh, District Attorney General for the, I believe it's the 22nd Judicial District of the great state of Tennessee, Brent Cooper. He's, Brent's going to join us, and we're going to talk through what happens now in the state of Tennessee and what that has to do with the ongoing investigation in the state of Wyoming. You're listening to Security Matters on CBS News Radio. Stay with me. We'll be right back. Now, back to Security Matters with Paul Violas. Forensic specialists and investigators faced more of a challenge with Sheridan County Jane Doe. The decomposition was far enough along her features were unrecognizable. Her eye color couldn't be determined, but forensics did reveal she was a Caucasian female who weighed approximately 110 to 115 pounds and stood around five and a half feet tall. Her shoulder-length hair had straight to wavy texture and was brown and sun-bleached, possibly indicating she spent a lot of time outdoors. She'd given birth at least once in her life, and the examiner estimated she died approximately a month before she was found, sometime in February of 1992. You've been listening to Security Matters with Paul Violas here on CBS News Radio's network. And if this case is not getting your attention, I don't think anything will. As we're back now, we're back with uh, Special Agent Lloyd Young from the great state of Wyoming, and we're going to be joined shortly by Mr. Brent Cooper, who is the District Attorney General for the 22nd Judicial District for the great state of Tennessee. And why we're going to do that is because before we took our break, we found a, a significant development in this case. On March 10, 1991, the body of an unknown white female was located in a wooded area off of Saturn Parkway near Port Royal Road. Crime scene yielded no significant clues other than skid marks that were made on the side of the roadway that indicated that an unloaded tractor-trailer rig had locked up its tires. Skid marks were directly in front of the location of the body and revealed no significant tread design. There was a small patch of blood on the side of the roadway that was later identified as coming from the victim. Victim showed signs of blunt force trauma and manual strangulation. The victim was dressed in a black cotton pleated miniskirt, pullover sweatshirt, gray and aqua in color, thermal underwear top, aqua in color, a black bra that was pulled up over her breast, and a pair of tan-colored pantyhose with the cotton crotch cut out. The victim was not wearing shoes, and no personal effects or identification were found with the body. The victim's face was covered with blood, as well as several items of her clothing. An autopsy was performed on the same day, 
Autopsy revealed that the victim had died due to manual strangulation and several abrasive marks were visible to the front of the victim's neck. The victim had suffered from pulmonary edema that accounted for the blood on the victim and on the side of the roadway. With us, as I mentioned before, Mr. Brent Cooper, District Attorney General for the 22nd Judicial, Di Judicial District for the great state of Tennessee. General Cooper, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. General Cooper, take us from here. What happens now? Uh, well, when I took office in uh, 2014, I, I wanted to make a concerted effort to solve cold case homicides in our area. And uh, to do that, I hired a very good investigator, uh, Mr. Tommy Goats. And uh, this particular case came to my office's attention early in 2019 uh, when the Spring Hill Police Department uh, reached out to us. Uh, Spring Hill uh, is a jurisdiction that covers the uh, Saturn Parkway all the way out to Interstate 65. Um, and uh, that, that department reached out to, to me and asked, uh, asked if we would take a look at this unsolved case they had from way back in 91. Uh, so that's what we did. Now, tell us how this investigation unfolded and what you have found out since then. Well, uh, you went over a lot of the, the initial uh, facts that we found out uh, about the victim, the location of the body, uh, things like that. Uh, first thing we did was we took uh, Spring Hill's case file and uh, went over that. Uh, that told us uh, that uh, this victim was, she was identified about a month later uh, as Pamela McCall uh, from Virginia. And... Um, we also found out that she was uh, known to, to frequent truck stops in the area, and uh, interviews with uh, were conducted back then uh, of people uh, that had been around uh, some of our local truck stops, and we actually had several witnesses that uh, that placed a, a lady, a young lady, matching her description uh, at the scene of a truck stop with a middle-aged white man. Um, one of those witnesses actually placed her getting into a dark uh, black or dark-colored long-nose uh, tractor-trailer like a Kenworth or a Freightliner uh, with this uh, middle-aged white man. And, uh, and then another witness uh, actually drove by the, uh, the uh, Port Royal Road exit on Saturn Parkway, the early in the morning of the same day her body was found and saw a truck matching that description uh, parked at that exit uh, with just its parking lights on. Uh, so we also found out that uh, investigators back in 91 had collected, uh, had swabbed the, the body, the clothing, there were swabs taken, but uh, of course you know back then they didn't have the DNA technology we do now. Correct. Uh, so... Um, we submitted that uh, those swabs to, to our lab uh, for possible DNA analysis, and uh, lo and behold, we got a hit. Uh, not on a not on a suspect, but uh, the DNA on our victim here in Tennessee uh, came back as a match to the DNA taken from two bodies in Wyoming. Now, let me interrupt real quick here, General Cooper. What what I want everyone to understand is the technology we're talking about. You heard Special Agent Young mention this. You've just heard Special, I'm sorry, General Cooper uh, from Tennessee mention it. Um, CODIS, briefly, so you understand that. 
the combined DNA index system, that's CODIS. Uh, in, in layman's terms, it, it blends forensic science and computer technology into a tool for linking violent crimes. It helps it to enable federal, state, and local forensic laboratories to exchange and compare DNA profiles electronically, thus allowing them to serial violent crimes to each other and to known offenders, which is exactly what General Cooper is explaining right now. Uh, so, uh, and, and General Cooper, just again, too, so that our audience is completely on the same page with everything, just wanted them to know the technology we were talking about, and we got, so now we have a connection, right, sir? We have a connection. We, we know, and please, between both you gentlemen, correct me if I'm wrong, but we know through DNA evidence that the unsub, the one we're looking for, is responsible for the woman in Tennessee that you found and the two women in Wyoming. Am I correct? Yes, you're okay. correct. That's exactly what it showed. So now, uh, General Cooper, where do you stand now on this case? Well, uh, we actually we have developed uh, one lead uh, to a person uh, that is currently in prison in Tennessee, uh, over in Far East Tennessee, uh, a man that uh, has, he's in there for very similar crimes to the ones we're investigating. Uh, the time frame for his offenses that he was convicted of are, are close uh, to our our time frame. They're, they occurred some, a few years afterwards. Uh, but uh, he's certainly someone we're interested in. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, his he was convicted early enough that his DNA was never entered into the CODIS database. Uh, so that would explain why when we ran our, our sample and Wyoming ran their sample, if he turns out to be the, the person, then that would explain why his there was no match made with him in CODIS. Uh, so we're in the process, uh, as we speak, of uh, getting his DNA and comparing it to the DNA that we have uh, here in Tennessee and Wyoming. Excellent. So what we're going to do right now with everybody listening is we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to ask General Cooper and I'm going to ask Special Agent Young what information they need from you and how they're going to need it and who you can contact because right now we're, we're getting close. We're inching down the road, but remember as close as it sounds, we're still light years away from identifying those two women found in Wyoming. And we're still far away from getting the person responsible, even though we know that the, sp the person, the unsub, that male we're looking for is responsible for these three. When we come back, General Cooper from the great state of Tennessee, special agent, Young from the great state of Wyoming. They are going to tell you what they need from you so that we can get these solved. Stay with me. Be right back. And now back to Security Matters with Paul Violas. The first autopsy couldn't determine a cause of death, but did rule out stabbing, shooting, strangulation, and sexual assault. However, it was later concluded she had died from blunt force trauma to the head, meaning Jane Doe was now their second female victim to turn up on the roadside within the span of months. 
Sheridan County Jane Doe received even less media attention, but behind the scenes, detectives made a grim connection. DNA found at the site of Jane Doe's body matched the blood type O found at the scene of Bitter Creek Betty's body, indicating both women likely fell victim to the same perpetrator. But without a name for either woman, finding a killer would prove nearly impossible. You're listening to Security Matters with Paul Violas, a CBS News Radio production. I'm Paul Violas, and we are back right now, ladies and gentlemen, with the information to sum up our first FOP cold case. And it's the information that now puts you in a driver's seat. I'm going to go back and remember briefly. We're looking back to starting back as, as, as early as two people disappearing as early as, as 92. We're looking at two, identif- two unidentified victims in the state of Wyoming. We're looking at an unidentified subject that we know has frequented Wyoming, uh, Arizona, and, and Tennessee. We know that that unsub is connected to three deceased people. We are going to give you in writing, and we are going to send this out, the things that we talked about already regarding Betty's description and I-90 Jane's description and everything else that we have, we're going to give you and it's going to come out. But right now, I'm going to defer to my two subject matter experts, my colleagues, and I'm going to ask them briefly to sum up by saying this. Loy, to you, what information does the great state of Wyoming need to know right now? And who do you want them to contact? Thanks, Paul. Well, first of all, if anyone out there has any information about uh, people who they believe could be our possible unidentified victims, or if anyone knows of any accounts of a white truck driver in the late 80s, early 90s that attempted to abduct a female subject or has heard information to that nature, please get a hold of us and and pass that along. And you can do that uh, by contacting the Wyoming Division of Criminal Investigation. Uh, that telephone number is area code 307-777-7181, or by contacting me directly. And you can reach me at uh, 307-672-8979 or my cell phone, 307-752-1062. Uh, additionally, um, we, we didn't have a lot of time to talk about this, but our, our victims are in uh, uh, the National Repository for Missing Persons and Unidentified Remains. It's called NamUs. And if people in the listening audience have a family or member or friend who is, has gone missing, um, you know, I would ask that they check with the law enforcement agency handling the investigation, make sure that their loved one is, is been added to NamUs. If not, there's a process for family members to add them to NamUs. Uh, also, if the missing person or loved one, uh, the law enforcement agency does not have DNA on file for that person, please make arrangements for a family member to provide a familial DNA sample because then it can be cross-matched to the unidentified persons and produce a possible match. Uh, right. And it, it would help us uh, tremendously. And you know what? I'm going to follow up on that, Lori. Um and thanks to information that I got from Lori, uh, for all of us to know, I am going to do a show just with NamUs. 
because that's definitely worthy for us to cover here. There's no question about that. So you all have my word on that. And Law, you have my word on that. Okay. I am going to do a show just on that to expand upon on that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, General Cooper, same thing. What information do you want from all of our listeners right now? What will help you and who do you want them to call? Well, uh, I guess I can be a little more specific about the information we need. If, if you know or if anyone out there knows a middle-aged white male uh, who was driving a tractor-trailer, a dark-colored, long-nosed tractor-trailer, uh, according to one of our witnesses, uh, this tractor-trailer had no markings on it, which would be very interesting, very unusual. There's no company logo on the on the size of the tractor trailer. No logos on the. Uh, it was pulling a white box trailer with no markings on it. So, if anyone out there knows someone that was driving a tractor trailer back in the late uh, that matches that description uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, especially if it was someone that uh, um, they may have had a run-in with that uh, tried to abduct them or, or something like that. Uh, we would like to know about it. Um, uh, also, uh, one fact I forgot to point out was that, that may uh, spark a little more interest in this case. The victim in our case, Miss McCall, was 20 weeks pregnant uh, at the time of her murder. Uh, so under Tennessee law now, that, that would be a double homicide. Uh, so if you know, if anyone out there knows Miss McCall, uh, that maybe had some spoke with her any time around the, in the spring of 1991 would be interested in talking to them also uh, the the number to call if you have any information uh, on these case or on this case is area code 931-374-1925 that's 931-374-1925 that's the direct line to uh, Tommy Goats, the investigator on this case. Uh, if you can't reach him there, you can call the DA's office at 931-380-2536 and just hit zero and you'll get a person that can get you in touch with uh, either me or Investigator Goats. Terrific. Well, uh, gentlemen, I can't thank you both enough for taking the time to do this. Um, so everybody knows what we are going to be doing at this point is we will be posting on the CBS page uh, at Security Matters, we will be posting the information that we talked about today that uh, both gentlemen are going to share with me. I'm going to put that up as far as the information they need. We're going to put up the information, uh, the contact information for all you all to, to, to call. But what I'm, what I'm asking now, as we sum this up, what I'm asking now is take some time and let this sink in. If you know anything about these particular matters, these cases, these victims, this particular potential suspect, anything at all, please call either one of these gentlemen because even if you think it's not important, it may be very important to them. And I can't, I can't say that enough. The reason why we're doing this is to help solve crimes. The reason why we're doing this is to bring some peace to people that are struggling, that have lost loved ones, and they have no closure. And the reason why we're doing this is to increase bringing justice and bringing these people to justice. As I said before and as I close today, 
We have 314 million Americans and we've got about 1.3 million cops. This is your shot right now. Use the people you know, use your, no your network, use your power of social media to get this information out to the masses. Help us make this country safer. And on behalf of everyone, my friend Pat Yeo's the president of the Fraternal Order Police, on behalf of everyone, all the members of the FOP, all our law enforcement, all our law enforcement officers out there in the United States, and everyone here uh, at CBS News Radio Security Matters, I want to thank you for this, and I'm going to thank you in advance for all the participation you're going to join us in making sure we get some resolution to these cases. And lastly, remember you can find the case notes and the police contact information at my website at violas.com. Just go to the podcast page and go down to FOP Case Summaries. Have a great week. Be safe, be well, God bless. Thanks for listening to Security Matters with Paul Violas. The podcast is produced by Seth Nyman and CBS News Radio. For more podcasts from CBS News, visit cbsaudio.com slash podcasts. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.